Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. And today we're celebrating what would have been Iris's 101st birthday. This podcast is going out on the 15th of July 2020 um, to celebrate this um, this event. Every year we try and celebrate it in a particular way. Last year, of course, we had a, uh, a large centenary conference in Oxford, but uh, this year it's a little bit more um, a little bit more subdued. But we've got a, a fantastic podcast for you because today I'm delighted to be joined by Anne Rowe again. Hello, Anne. Hello, Miles. Anne will be well known to uh, many of you, I'm sure, um, not just through her work, but also through the earlier podcasts on Under the Net and Iris Murdoch on the Moving Image. Uh, but today for, um, for Iris's birthday, we're going to be taking a tour of the National Gallery uh, with Anne as our tour guide. And we're going to be um, looking at the facade of the gallery, talking about why art and um, painters were important to her, and then looking at four particular paintings and also their um, relevance to particular novels as well. For example, the Gainsborough in, um, in The Bell, the Bronzino in The Nice and the Good, the Giorgione in um, The Sacred and Profane Love Machine, and Titian's The Death of Actian in Henry and Cato. So, Anne, could you tell, before we um, go into the podcast um, and look particularly at the novels, could you tell us about why art galleries were so important to Iris? Well, she just loved art galleries. Um, the National Gallery is not the only gallery to appear in the novels. Of course, the Wallace Collection comes into yeah, Under the Net yeah. and the Sea, the Sea. But whenever she travelled abroad, which she did um, greatly with her husband, um, she would always put a gallery visit uh, on the itinerary. So when they were in New York, she would go to the Frick Gallery, which she loved, and the Museum of Modern Art. If she was in Rome, she would go to the Bacchese Gallery, in Madrid, the Prado. Now, this love affair uh, with galleries lasted her entire life, and I think that she used them as a kind of sacred space, a spiritual home, somewhere that she could retire anywhere in, in the world uh, for emotional refuge or spiritual nourishment, she called it. Mm. Um, she thought that art galleries could actually function in society alongside churches. For those who could no longer subscribe to conventional religion, um, art galleries could be meaningful spaces for reflection uh, and meditation. Now, when she was in London, it was the National Gallery. I think she visited most at every possible opportunity. And her London homes were always located within easy access. Um, there's a lovely letter where she records in 1945, 50 paintings had been stored in Wales in slate mines uh, and returned to the National Gallery after the war. And she says, oh, heavenly bliss uh, to her friend in a letter. And I think that she would probably uh, have been amongst the very first visitors uh, to the National Gallery to see those. So I think the National Gallery was a source of inspiration for her psychologically and also a source of inspiration for the novels. Now, John Bailey said that uh, when she was considering ideas for new novels, especially when she hit the writer's block that was discovered to be the onset of Alzheimer's, that they used to visit the National Gallery because sometimes a painting would set her off. Now, the four paintings that you've just mentioned that we're going to talk about, I think all these paintings um, were inspired by the painting that she sees in the National Gallery. So the plots of the novels, the philosophy in the novels and the moral psychology of the novels, I think, are all deeply informed by these paintings. Yes, absolutely. I would agree with you there. And of course, this enduring love of art and painting and of course, relationships, friendships with painters, 
it it was um throughout a lot throughout her life wasn't it so i mean she she says at one point that she would have loved to have been an art historian she did she did i mean i think this goes back even further than when she was at uh, oxford when she wanted to be an art historian i mean as a schoolgirl in badminton school she learned about painting she read biographies of painters about the lives of painters and i think probably about different schools of art and art theory um she said to her friend Anne Leach in a, in a letter when she was about 17, um, she said, I would sell every faculty I have to paint one good picture. So, um, and then later in her adult life, she indulged this love of painting by making friends with many painters, working painters. Now, there's two important painters um, that she was writing to, and we have hundreds of letters um, in the archives to were Barbara Dorff, uh, whom she visited at her studio in Notting Hill and corresponded with for many years. And, of course, Harry Weinberger, a fine artist who escaped from Germany as a boy, uh, served in the British Army and whose work was exhibited in London galleries. Now, Murdoch wrote the introductions to several of his exhibitions, and we have those um, programmes in, in the uh, archives. I think the most important thing about the relationship with Weinberger, which feeds into the novels, is that he was also a practising art teacher. Yeah. Um, and we know from her hundreds of letters to Weinberger that they discussed art theories, especially theories of modern art and works of contemporary painters such as Lucian Freud. Now, all these discussions, of course, fed into the novels. And I think what's interesting about this is that it's possible to discern the criteria uh, that both of them felt uh, defined good art and bad art. If you look at some of the fictional painters in the novels, uh, for example, uh, Tim Reed in Nuns and Soldiers or Jesse Boltram in The Good Impre Apprentice. And then you compare the work of those painters with the great painters that we've just mentioned, Giorgione, Tintoretto, Gainsborough, Titian. You get a really good idea of, of how she's educating readers into discerning good art from bad art. Um, it's worth mentioning as well that uh, this desire for to be a painter herself um, never left her and she did herself attempt to paint at various times. I'm not sure if you've seen the several paintings that we have by Iris that we hold in the archives. Yes, I've seen a few of them. Yes, absolutely. Well, they're, um, they're interesting, um, I think. They've got rather lovely muted colours, something of Bloomsbury about them, I think. Um, there's a still life and there's paintings of houses and a snow scene and a leafy setting with houses arranged on a steep hill and a bridge. Um, it would be an exaggeration to ascribe great merit to them, I think. Uh, and they could just be simple exercises in perspective. But either way, she or John Bailey thought that her efforts were worthy enough of framing and hanging in the downstairs study at their Oxford home. So, you know, she said um, she would have made a moderately good painter she, if she dedicated her life to it. So I think moderately good would be about... About yeah, right. you, you can see what she's trying to attempt to do. And you can also see the influences of other artists upon her work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she took it very seriously and put a lot of effort and concentration mm. um, in, in to be able to see through the eyes of the painter and see the world um, as a painter would have looked at it. It was incredibly important and informed the way, I think, that she actually wrote the novels. And, of course, the time that she spent teaching at the Royal, at, um, in London, at the Royal College of Arts and... Um... Yes. And, and pick it, picking up on so much there as well in the 60s. Absolutely. That was between 1964 and 1968, actually teaching uh, philosophy to art history students. 
So there would have been a huge amount, uh, and this comes out, this will come out when we talk about the nice and good in 1968, um, a huge amount of what she was working with, with students at the, in those years, comes through into the, the, the novels. Yes, yes and, and not just what she was teaching them, but what they were bringing to her as well, what Absolutely. they were talking yeah. about, showing her, those sorts of things. Yeah. Well, let, let's begin then. Let's, let's um, and, and, and if you're listening on the podcast, you can go onto the National Gallery's uh, website, um, and you can um, have a virtual tour of the gallery that um, the NG provides. So if you're listening and you'd like to do that, you can do. And Anne and I, Anne and I will um, take you through and tell you with the rooms that you're, we're going to be using. Also underneath the podcast, if you're listening on SoundCloud, there'll be links to the um, the four major paintings that we'll be talking about. But let's start outside the National Gallery, Anne. Let's talk about the, the significance of the architecture of it. Do you want to? So we're, we're, we're standing... We're standing um, in Trafalgar in Trafalgar Square and yeah. looking at looking at the facade. Um, can you tell Absolutely. us a little bit about it? I mean, when she first lived in London uh, in the mid nineteen forties, she was already extremely interested in the way that architecture of public buildings affected the psychology of those who lived in the city. Now, Jake Donahue, the first person narrator of Under the Net, published in 1954, begins with his picaresque journey in the novel uh, with shattered nerves. And he's healed partially, you know, his his development throughout the novel is partly due to the environment in which he lives. So he walks the streets of London, he walks the embankment, he swims in the Thames, uh, he visits pubs, and he looks at national monuments. So the impact of buildings on the psychological well-being uh, of humans is a theme in this novel and in many other novels, in particular, how architecture could play a part in the healing of those who'd suffered so much uh, during the war and, and reinforcing national pride. Now, we should forget that after the war, Murdoch had returned from working in the United Nations in Europe. And she'd witnessed some very disturbing things, I think, in those years, including interviewing people being repatriated to their homeland to face almost certain death and the deracination of those who would never see their homes again. So her visits to the National Gallery would have included, I think, a pause on the magisterial steps leading up to the main entrance to relish its magnificence and its heroic proportions and admire the Greek revivalist, revivalist style of the great pillars uh, that were designed for the purpose of boosting national pride when the building was um, laid out in the 1920s. So it's intended, the National Gallery is, itself is intended to lift the spirits above everyday experience and to make people proud of their heritage. Do you know, I've been thinking about this, um, reading the newspapers over the last few weeks. Um, I think she'd be rattling off letters to the Times now in relation to the debate that's currently going on about national monuments and how as society, as a society, we're becoming more aware of their complex backgrounds. I think she'd probably want to suggest that all monuments and statues are the products of a historical past and this is a very complex area and it would be a disaster, I think, if we allow the shadows of the past to obscure their beauty and their light. You know, something of value, value will be lost if we diminish the impact of monuments um, in the time they were built. Although I think she would think that we must allow them to speak truthfully so that we can learn from them and learn about the mistakes of the past, that they can never be repeated again. Sure, but, yeah. Certainly, I mean, for the young woman, uh, back to Iris, in her 20s, in the late 1940s and 50s, uh, and right into the rest of her life, the sight 
of this imposing and magnificent building would have triggered tremendous spiritual and emotional well-being, I think, for her. And it invites that to any generation who come after her um, to ask themselves, you know, what is worth fighting for in life? What's worth living for? And when people come into the presence of something that invites them to think about the bigger picture, something much more significant than themselves, that they experience a change. It moves, um, it moves them. It moves them. Yeah. Uh, and and it, it changes the way they engage with the world. And I think this is something that she's trying to illustrate uh, throughout her dealings with the characters as they go into the National Gallery. Mm. Well, let, let's do that. Let's let's go through the main doors and um, and, and into the uh, into the uh, the atrium. And of course, this isn't this is um, a tour that you've done before in real life. Um, oh, indeed. Many times with you. Many, many times. Um, along with Francis, Francis White and Pamela Osborne, generations of students from Kingston University who studied on the Iris Murdoch special subject every year we would do a tour of, of these four paintings in the National Gallery. Um, and we would get the students to think about them and talk about them. And then we would go back into the classroom, look at these um, sections in the books that you're going to read for us later, and really, really interrogate them and try to work out what exactly she was doing here. After which, I should like to say, we would go across to the Chandos pub across the road <laughs> <laughs> and have lunch uh, and chat to the students. Um, it, it was, I think, um, a liquid a lunch or something more substantial. Um, both. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, where should, where are we going? To, right. Okay. But well, bef before we have our um, refreshments, where shall we begin? Well, we're going to be begin in room thirty-five. Okay. Okay. Now, yeah. um, in room thirty-five, we will find Thomas Gainsborough's portrait um, of the painter's daughters chasing a butterfly. This was painted in 1756 and it appears in The Bell, mm. which was published in 1958. This is one of the most famous uh, passages, I think, in, in all of Murdoch's um, novels. Um, and it is the first novel where Murdoch illustrates her ideas about art galleries and how they can induce the same kind of religious transformations as churches. And sometimes, quite often, art galleries can succeed where churches fail. Um, I think she also wants to illustrate now that one single profound engagement with a specific work of art can transpose us from one psychological state to another. We can be fundamentally changed by stopping, looking intently at a great work of art and trying to engage with it emotionally and intellectually. Now, the character involved in this transformation is Dora Greenfield. Um, Dora is, by nature, rather solipsistic and unreflective. Dora's unmarried and happily married to a domineering, stuffy art historian husband and rebels by having an extramarital affair with a journalist, Noel Spence. Now, she leaves Paul briefly uh, uh, and then returns to him at Imbercourt, which is a religious lay community in Gloucestershire, where he's been researching and attempting once again to mould Dora into his ideal wife. It doesn't work. Dora escapes back to London uh, and the eager arms of Noel, whom she visits at his flat. This is for pure sexual gratification on both sides. Now, Murdoch sets the scene beautifully here. Nora, uh, Dora and 
Uh, Noel danced to a slow, seductive jazz. They sip wine and the supper of salami, stuffed olives and pâtés all ready to be served. Murder puts the reader firmly on Dora's side here. She seduces the readers into enjoying the moment as much as Dora. But then something very significant happens. I think that Noel pops out for another bottle of wine. And then the telephone rings. Paul barks down the phone. Dora, where are you? But she's not listening. Dora's attention is taken by the song of the blackbird in the garden in the background at Imber. Now, the random nature of the blackbird song, which has no pattern, is completely irregular and it gives Dora an intuition of freedom. Somewhere in her unconscious mind, she understands that what she's doing with Noel is not an act of freedom. It's just another slavish succumbing to her sexual needs. So without any rational decision making, acting completely on instinct, uh, Dora, who'd been a student at the Slade School of Art, hails a cab and takes herself off to the National Gallery, where she said she'd been a thousand times before. And you will read to us, Miles, I think, what happens to Dora when she goes in to room 35 and looks at the Gainsborough painting. I will. So this is the uh, just towards the end of chapter 14. And if you've got one of the lovely new editions, it's page 207. Dora was always moved by the pictures. Today she was moved, but in a new way. She marvelled with a kind of gratitude that they were all still here. And her heart was filled with love for the pictures, their authority, their marvellous generosity, their splendour. It occurred to her that here at last was something real and something perfect. Who had said that about perfection and reality being in the same place? Here was something which her consciousness could not wretchedly devour, and by making it part of her fancy, make it worthless. Even Paul, she thought, only existed now as someone she dreamt about, or else as a vague external menace, never really encountered and understood. But the pictures were something real outside herself, which spoke to her kindly and yet in sovereign tones. Something superior and good whose presence destroyed the dreary trance-like solipsism of her earlier mood. When the world had seemed to be subjective, it had seemed to be without interest or value. But now there was something else in it, after all. These thoughts, not clearly articulated, flitted through Dora's mind. She had never thought about the pictures in this way before, nor did she draw now any very explicit moral. Yet she felt that she had had a revelation. She looked at the radiant, sombre, tender, powerful canvas of Gainsborough and felt a sudden desire to go down on her knees before it, embracing it, shedding tears. Thank you. One of the most important things about that passage is this description of what happens inside Dora's mind as she looks at the painting is unique. This is the only time that Murdoch will describe such feelings so directly. In future, the readers are going to have to work much harder. So what she's telling us that, um, that's happening to Dora here, this is her most direct challenge to, play, to Plato's suspicions about art mm. and her most overt championing of her belief that art can make us morally better. There's no doubt that, that the change is taking place in Dora's mind here. 
There's a direct link here to Murdoch's own moral philosophy, the idea that morally, morality comes out of unselfing, that moment of focusing so intently on something other than the self that the ego is cracked. And for a moment, you see outside your own self and your own self-obsessions and realize that other people exist with a reality just as significant as one's own. So this moment for Dora has been occasioned by the vulnerability and the beauty, the faces of those two beautiful children. Um, she realizes what it means for someone else to exist, somebody so different from herself. And they are real and that they are there. So it's a life-defining moment for Dora, instigated by the painting. So there's a few more interesting things to point out here. The first is the dramatic change in Dora, Dora's inner life is not inst instigated by intellect. This is done purely by an emotional response. Murdoch has said that if no feeling is present, no art is present. And she would include the erosion, arousing of emotions as in, in her definition of art. So Dora's engagement with the Gainsborough is a lesson in how Murdoch wants her own readers to respond to her portrait of Dora. So when we are reading about Dora engaging with the painting, we are so wrapped up in what Dora's experiencing that we are having our moment of, of ecstasis, if you like. Yeah. So our, our own moment of unselfing um, that is mirroring Dora's. It's incredibly clever, um, I think. Um, one other and, and, it, and it's the moment at which the whole novel changes as well, because then oh, she realises she's got to go back to Imber. Absolutely. It's a pivotal moment. Um, she's able to make decisions because by looking outside herself, she comes to know herself better. So Murdoch, uh, Iris has talked about this painting in interview quite extensively, and she says something rather interesting. So there's what go what's going on in Murdoch's mind as she's writing. There's what's going on in the Dora's mind as she's looking at the painting. What's going on in the reader's mind as we are watching Dora. And she says, what is going on in the mind of the artist is also mm. important. And you only have to look at these lovely, beautiful faces of the small girls to feel the love for them that is in the heart and the eyes of the painting. So I think it's, it's love that's the key ingredient in how this painting works. Dora understands in just a single moment what it means to really love another human being. She knows she doesn't love Paul. She knows she doesn't love Noel Spence. And something instinctively alerts her to where the shortfalls are in her own life. And as you say, she knows now she has to go back to Imber and sort things out. So just one final point about this. Um, all this energy within the inner life happens beneath surface consciousness. Real change is taking place, but Dora is not at all clear about what has happened. These thoughts not clearly articulated, flitted through Dora's mind. So if we go to a gallery and look at a painting and we are moved by it, we don't necessarily or have to be aware or can be aware of what's happening, but that doesn't mean to say that the change is not taking place. There's a beautiful little butterfly fluttering just in front of the girls. Um, and I think that might be just a symbol of how the painting works. It is always there, fluttering just outside our conscious thoughts flimsy and ephemeral but very very significant yes and of course echoing the butterfly that we had earlier on in the novel on the train yes yes yeah, yeah. and uh, of course we ought to mention that um we have um talks 
extensively about this in, in previous podcasts in the moving image we meant it was mentioned and also on the um the podcast for the bell yeah so um yeah we've uh, i think had a a really good um ex ex exploration of what that painting means to both to the novel and to and to murdoch herself and which, which room are we going to next well we've got to wait 10 years now um before we have another painting in the national gallery right um we go to 1968, uh, The Ninth and the Good, and we have to move on now to room 10 right. uh, to find Bronzino's Allegory of Venus, Cupid, Folly and Time. Uh, this was painted in around about 1545. Um, you're not going to miss this painting when you walk into room 10. It's a huge, magnificent painting. Uh, it's been billed as one of the most frankly erotic paintings in the National Gallery collection. Um, and it depicts the allegorical figures of time and truth who are removing gently a curtain to reveal Venus and Cupid frozen in a deep erotic moment before the spinning, clutching descent into sexual consummation. Now you have to remember that Venus and Cupid are mother and son. Mm. So what we're looking at uh, is an image of prospective uh, incest. There's three other characters in the painting. There's Folly, who showers the lovers with rose petals, Deceit, who's got a foul body and a fair face, and then Jealousy, ugly, demented and anguished. All these characters, all these um, painting characters in the painting match up with characters in the novel. Uh, Kate Gray is folly, uh, Richard Barani would be deceit and jealousy uh, would be Jessica Bird. So um, they're all there. This is what leads me to believe that she'd been into the National Gallery, looked at this painting and then constructed the themes and the issues and the philosophy of the novel around the painting. Yes, I'd um, agree with that. More so than the Gainsborough, I think. Oh, very much so. I think the yeah. Gainsborough is more incidental. Yes. Um, this, I think, um, the whole structure of the novel parallels the structure of the painting. Now, the painting actually appears twice in the novel, um, visited by Paula Birani, who is estranged from her serially unfaithful husband, Richard. Now, what's key about these moments when Paula engages with the painting in the National Gallery? She's at pivotal moments in her marriage and she has to decide whether or not the strong sexual chemistry uh, within her marriage should override her moral repugnance towards Richard's behaviour. So the thing that unites the painting and the novel um, is that both of them were created when sexual freedoms were at an all-time high. Now the Bronzina was painted when a wave of syphilis was sweeping across Europe and the novel was written at the peak of the sexual revolution in the 1960s. Now both these works are extraordinary because they're they're paradoxical, contradictory. Both works are celebrations of sexual freedoms, which is celebrated through their vibrant, colourful, arresting form. But at the same time, in their content, they warn of its dangers through their narratives. So, you know, as a teacher, um, one of the most interesting things about the duet being played out here between the painting and the novel is that Murdoch is asking questions totally relevant to the lives of young students in their late teens and early 20s, particularly in an age where there are few moral or social barriers now that condemn recreational sex. So she's asking, when is it psychologically and morally right for intense erotic desire to be thoughtlessly indulged? And when is it damaging and dangerous to the self and society to do so? 
So she's exploring what strategies can be employed when your body is sort of dragging you towards one direction and your conscience is dragging you towards another. Mm. Now, there are nine instances in the book where a pair of characters are brought to this precipice. Now, no two results carry the same moral weighting. Sometimes people fall into bed with each other thoughtlessly, and it's absolutely fine. Sometimes it's completely dangerous. Sometimes there's Uncle Theo on the beach just about to put his hand on Piers' buttocks, and he stops. Um, so there's all sorts of permutations of right and wrong in relation to the imagery that she's borrowing from the painting. Now, what I want to talk about particularly is one significant instance in the novel uh, which is significant to the moral core of the book and the painting and makes direct reference to the Bronzino painting. Now, this comes when the senior civil servant John Duquesne gets back to his London flat to find a woman he knows to be a prostitute, Judy McGrath, lying naked on his bed. Now, Miles, you're going to read this little um, vignette for us where he finds Judy on the bed and how he deals with the situation. But readers and possibly listeners here you have to follow carefully the psychological strategies that Murdoch employs or gives Richard, um, gives Duquesne to diffuse this moment of sexual temptation. Um, now, if this were to be indulged, he's a very senior civil servant. This will ruin his career and the lives of many others with, to whom he's close. Um, so this is the moment that Duquesne walks to his bed, looks intently at Judy's naked body, and the echoes of the Bronzino painting, I think, are quite well signposted. So over to you, Miles. Duquesne moved slowly round and regarded her. She lay prone, her face plunged into the pillow. With a sudden intensity of concentration, he looked at her body, giving it the attention which he might have given, in some picture gallery far from home, to a masterpiece which he might never mm -hmm. see again. Only this was not the gaze of contemplation. Duquesne allowed himself to realise his strong, directed excitement. In fantasy, he laid his hand down very gently upon the golden neck beneath the dry, crisp pile of dark hair, upon that particular hillock of the spine, and drew it very slowly downward over the velvety hump of the shoulder into the hollow of the back, which would move and shudder a little along the glossy curve of the hip, and then, more slowly still, over the firm, strokeable rise of the buttock, and on to the back of the thigh, which Duquesne saw, as he moved now noiselessly closer to the bed, to be covered with a fleece of golden hair. Suppose I was to fuck her, Duquesne said to himself. This was a word which he never normally used, even in his thoughts, and its sudden occurrence now excited and shocked him. The word came again with the voice of Richard Barani. Barani had used the word, he felt sure, sometime in their discussion. Well, suppose he were to. Duquesne put his glass down very silently upon the bedside table. The girl was lying quite still, her face invisible, her breathing just perceptible in the faintest regular pressure upon the white sheet beneath her shadowed side. She might be asleep. Duquesne's fantasy fingers stroked her body with a feathery, creative touch. The light, light touch of passion, which conjures forth to the last caress detail, a presence of flesh. He leaned over her. 
A faint smell arose from Judy's body. It was not an unpleasant smell, mingled of sweat and cosmetics. Duquesne looked down between Judy's shoulder blades. He saw a grey, tumbled heap of dead pigeons. He opened his mouth and devoured the smell of Judy. He felt again the onrush of Luciferian lightness and saw in Radice's handwriting, written across Judy's bare golden shoulders, the message, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. At the same time, Duquesne felt perfectly cold. A cold watcher within him saw the scene and knew that he would not even with the most diffident or momentary gesture lay his hand upon the satiny golden back of Judy McGrath. He thought, she knows I will not touch her. She knows I will not. Perhaps she conjectures I cannot. He put his hand down, holding himself instead, restraining and comforting that which so much wanted Judy. Thank you, Miles. This is the point um, in, in a class of students where I would say, OK, get into pairs and we would spend the next 40, 45 minutes going through that passage um, and, and looking at the distinct plan of action that's being suggested here that can be employed to diffuse the eroticism of the moment. First of all, Duquesne acknowledges his desire, doesn't repress it. Then he considers his options. He could, he couldn't. What if he did? Then he indulges the moment in his fantasies. And then there's this single most effective mechanism that he employs. He calls to mind an image. It's the image and the smell of the dead pigeons that he'd found in the basement um, in Whitehall, where his colleague uh, Radici had been conducting and practicing black masses. Now, this is, for me, one of the most single um, meaningful moments that um, Murdoch's describing in this passage because she says we can all employ this strategy in moments of extreme temptation. We can have our own icon. She says we all have our icons untainted and vital that we can call on to use in such moments. Now for Duquesne earlier on he actually thinks of paintings that he knows really well, paintings of nude women, so that he's desensitizing the moment by objectifying Judy du Duquesne. For us, when we're in these moments, you can use any kind of image. Um, it could be the image of the face of someone you love. It could be an image of one of your own favourite paintings. Any icon um, that you can bring into that moment and help to diffuse it. It's the practicality uh, of the advice that she's giving here that I think that is significant and significant to students who are studying this. Um, Duquesne manages to, to stop himself you know, this would have been a complete disaster, but she's not being a killjoy here and she's not being puritanical because out of the other nine instances in the book where this character characters are drawn to this pivotal moment, um, sometimes, um, as happens in Duquesne's bedroom, on Duquesne's bed, later in the novel, um, his ex-girlfriend, Jessica Bird, is rummaging around in his room. She's convinced that Duquesne is having an affair and she's looking for evidence. Um, Duquesne's not in the flat, but his friend, Willie Cost, is there. And he goes in and says to Jessica, you're not really an interior designer, are you? And she says, no, I am a jealous woman. Um, he holds her hands, makes that wonderful meditation on jealousy. They fall back, have 
bollocking good sex on the bed and nobody gets hurt and nobody gets harmed. In fact, Jessica is healed of her love for Duquesne and Willie is able to make love for the first time in many, many years. So, um, you know, it's, it's defining these moments and morally trying to understand, distinguish right and wrong. And what she's offering here is positive, practical methods by which we can try and do the best thing, try and do the right thing at, at the right time. Mm. And, and highlighting the messiness of life as well. Yes. Yeah. And so where should we go next? Right. We need to head right now to room 56 um, to find Giorgione's Il Tramonto. Um, it's Sunset Lams Landscape, Murdoch um, identifies it in the Sacred and Profane Love Machine. Um, this was painted between 1506 and 1510, uh, and the novel, The Sacred and Profane Love Machine, in which it appears, was published in 1974. Now, this painting crops up in the novel when Harriet Gavinder is dropped off at the National Gallery by her husband. He's on his way to work one afternoon, um, and Harriet is a bit troubled because she's seen a, a figure of a young boy now, he's been spotted standing under the, an acacia tree at the bottom of her garden at night. Now, generally, Harriet is rather busy convincing herself that she's very happily married to her psychoanalyst husband, Blaze. Um, and she never really questions his frequent nights away caring for a patient, Magnus Bowles, uh, who's a fictitious cover for Blaze to spend time with his long-term mistress, Emily McHugh, and their son, Luca who's the mysterious figure standing under the tree in Harriet's garden. I think um, Lucas followed Blaze home from his mother's flat and now knows who he is and where he lives. So it's this image of the tree, the tree in the garden of Hood House, which is echoed right at the centre of the Giorgione painting. And I think it's the image of the tree that's key to unravelling the link between the novel and the painting. Giorgione's tree divides the activities of two saints. So off to the right um, is St. George, who's busy having uh, slaying an offensive, an inoffensive, domesticated, very small dragon. And then in the foreground is St. Anthony, who's busying himself attending to the sick while all sorts of quite menacing demons are creeping out of the murky depths of a lagoon and looming over him in monster-like rocks. So Miles, if you'd like to read um, the part where we see and we are engaging with Harriet till she's looking at the painting. Of course. She had felt very strange that afternoon in the National Gallery. An intense physical feeling of anxiety had taken possession of her. She was looking at Giorgione's picture of St Anthony and St George. There was a tree in the middle background, which she had never properly attended to before. Of course she had seen it. She, and she had often looked at the picture, but she had never before felt its significance though what that significance was, she could not say. There it was, in the middle of clarity, in the middle of bright darkness, in the middle of limpid, sultry yellow air, in the middle of nowhere at all, with distant clouds creeping by behind it, linking the two saints, yet also separating them, and also being itself and nothing to do with them at all. A ridiculously frail, poetical, vibrating, motionless tree, which was also a special particular tree on a special particular evening when the two saints happened, how odd, to be doing their respective things, ignoring each other, in a sort of murky yet brilliant glade. What on earth, however, was going on in the foreground? Besides a luscious, glistening pool, 
out of which two small and somehow domesticated demons were cautiously emerging for the benefit of St. Anthony, while behind them St. George, with a helmet like a pearl, was bullying an equally domesticated and inoffensive little dragon. Hypnotised by the tree, Harriet found that she could not take herself away. She stood there for a long time staring at it, trying to move, took several paces looking back over her shoulder, then came back again, as if there were some vital message which the picture was trying and failing to give her. Perhaps it was just Giorgione's maddening genius for saying something absurdly precise, and yet saying it so marvellously that the precision was all soaked away into a sort of cake of sheer beauty. This nervous mania of anxious looking back, Harriet recalled, having suffered when young in the Louvre and the Uffizi and the Academia. The last visit on the last day, as closing time approached, indeed the last minutes of any day, had had this quality of heartbreaking severance, combined with an anxious, thrilling sense of a garbled, unintelligible, urgent message. This experience had been a stranger to her for some time now since Blaze was not interested in pictures and she had not visited the foreign galleries. Why suddenly this emotion on this occasion for this picture? Was it something prophetic? Already a number of times she had walked away, determined not to look back, and had looked back. It was absurd. Thank you. Now what Murdoch's giving us here is a visual map of Harriet's inner life. What the beautiful, fragile little tree at the centre is doing is dividing two antithetical states of Harriet's mind. One expressing a bogus image of courage. Harriet's proud of her status. She says, I'm a soldier's sister, soldier's daughter, and she sees herself as a brave, strong woman. Now, the other side uh, of, of Harriet's mind is dealing with a small danger while far worse ones are threatening, unseen. And this is a case of classic Freudian repress repression, I think, in Harriet's mind. Um, and the parallels between the painting and Harriet's situation might well be recognised by the reader, I think, at this point in the novel, uh, and in Harriet's reaction to the painting, which will highlight her own failure to read the obvious signs of, of the disaster that's going to come in her marriage, and indicates clearly the level of self-deception uh, that she's working under, that she's basing her life on completely on this self-deception. Now, the hint to the reader here is that, that Harriet knows a truth that she will not allow herself to confront. Um, if she would stop longer at the painting and allow it to call her back, she could learn something about herself that could save her much heartache in the future. At this point in the mid-70s, I think Murdoch is beginning to think deeply about the nature of courage and whether her own moral demand for self-annihilation could not, in some people, foster a kind of moral timidity. Maybe it does so in herself as well. She, think, she begins to think about the difference between inaction and non-action. Doing nothing can be a simple case of moral, dangerous cowardice. There is a self-negation that is an act of love and selflessness, and there is a self-negation that is an act of avoidance and cowardice. So all these ideas are being played out in this novel in relation to the painting. And Murdoch's challenging the reader, I think, asking us to question our own motives, whether we are fooling ourselves into believing we are brave not to, decise, 
act decisively when in fact the courage that is needed is the courage to confront a situation head on. So the need for violence in certain situations is one of the themes of the book. Uh, and this is reflected, of course, in the actions of St. George in the painting. Mm, yeah. um, so how and when are acts of violence bogus and cruel? And how and when might they be healthy or cleansing? Now, in Murdoch's philosophy at the time, she was considering what defines heroism. And she'd made the distinction in uh, her essay, Existentialists and Mystics, between an existentialist hero and a mystical hero. St. George and St. Anthony, respectively, the man who was lonely, brave, defiant, proud, without pretension, the godless adventurer, uh, which is the existentialist hero, and then the mystical hero, the man with humility who tries to purge himself. So the painting links and even contests these two types of heroism and indicates Murdoch's grappling with how can, one can be clear about so much that goes on beneath surface consciousness. Poor old Harriet uh, comes down on the wrong side of the bargain in the book. She's proven to be something of a coward and she's punished quite heavily for it. Um, her old friend Edgar, Edgar Demani tells her, you've not been a healer, but an accomplice of evil. Vague, tolerant pity is not true kindest, kindness here. You're trying to spare yourself. Now, finally, what Harriet sees as an act of bravery in the manner of St. George and love for Luca um, the boy under the tree she tries to rescue from Blaise and Emily, she's actually gunned down by terrorists at Hanover Airport, the most intense evil um, violence. So the painting is raising some testing questions, not only for the reader and for Harriet, but I think for Murdoch herself. And I think at this point it might be pointing to some self-reflection about her own moral philosophy. And if it is a kind of self-reflection, I wonder if that when she did herself wander into the National Gallery and look at this picture, uh, she felt something of the unease that Harriet feels when she's looking at it. Very much a book that leaves um, a lot of these paradoxes unresolved, I think. Yes, and perhaps for that reason, it's also one of her least recognised um... I suppose, but both in um, terms of com commercial success, but also um, it, it's had less attention in an academic sense as well, hasn't it? Yes, it, it's um, it's a difficult book. Uh, mm. I think um, A.S. Byatt says about an unofficial rose that she relies too heavily on the imagery in a painting in that book to speak for the characters. Uh, and this was um, a, a drawing of Susanna Bathing by Tintoretto that she uses in an unofficial rose. I think the same thing happens a little bit in the sandcastle where she relies too heavily on imageries of painting. And I think this is what happens in this book, that she relies a little bit too much, perhaps on the Giorgione painting, and it doesn't articulate these themes and issues as clearly as, as she ought to. And I think, as I say, this is something A.S. Byatt had picked up just what possibly one of the yes. reasons why this, okay. this book is, is le less successful than the others. You have to work very, very hard to try and um, get to it. And you have to make great leaps um, of, of the imagination to try and understand the, this inner life. But the painting is there. Um, mm. And it's fine if you if you explore the imagery in the painting and take it to the novel. And it does help to explain. But I think for readers who are, are not making that attempt uh, it, it can be quite difficult. 
Yes, maybe a, a novel um, to attempt after you've read several others. Of, yeah, of indeed. Yeah, indeed. I, I would I would certainly agree with that. Where are we going next? We're our, finishing. Our, our, now I, this is our last visit. Uh, we're going to room six, where we're going to find Titian's Death of Actaeon, painted between 1559 and 1575. And this features in Henry and Cato, which was published in 1976. Now, currently, as we speak, this painting is part of the Titian Love, Desire and Death exhibition that's on at the National Gallery. So it may not be in its usual place. Um, I've tried very hard to get tickets for the exhibition, but it's completely booked up for weeks and weeks to come. Of course, so, I think it's just opened yesterday, didn't it? Um, within the last few days, yes, yeah, it's, yeah. it is staying open, I think, until January the 21st. So there'll be plenty of opportunity if anybody wants to go and uh, see Titian's Death of Actaeon there. Um, re recommended, I'm sure. Oh, it is. Yeah, it is. I have to say, though, um, when I wrote all this down for my PhD thesis, I remember presenting to my supervisor, Patrick pa Parinder, my thoughts about how the death of Actaeon appears in, in Henry and Cato. And uh, he said to me, I think you're going to have to do rather better than that. <laughs> um, I said, but I don't think I quite understand what she's doing. And I think I'm still in the process of working out. So what I'm offering today isn't quite what I've said in my book about the, the visual arts and Iris Murdoch's novels. Um, it is something I've just more recently thought of, but I'm still not sure that I'd quite got uh, to this. It's, it's difficult, it's tricky. Now the painting is sort of a still or a snapshot from Ovid's Metamorphoses. Actaeon has surprised the goddess Diana and her nymphs at a secret bathing place in the forest. Um, and he flees very quickly. Then stopping to drink at a stream, he discovers from his reflection that Diana has transformed him into a stag. Now, Titian shows Actaeon in the process of his transformation as, at Diana's order, he's torn to death by his own hands, while the, god while the goddess, with a bow in her hand, looks implacably on at the scene. And, Miles, if you could read this little section for us, please. Yes, certainly. He was in the National Gallery, examining the most important acquisition made during his absence. Titian's great Diana and Actaeon, the immortal goddess with curving apple cheek, her bow uplifted, bounds with graceful, ruthless indifference across the foreground, while further back in an underworld of brooding light, the dull-like figure of Actaeon falls stiffly to the onslaught of the dogs. A stream flashes, a distant mysterious horseman passes, the woods, the air, of a russet brown so intense and frightening as to persuade one that the tragedy is taking place in total silence. Henry felt such intense pleasure as he looked at the picture. He felt so purely happy that he wanted to howl aloud with delight. Smiling, he sat down. It was certainly dangerous to tangle with goddesses. Athena was a fearful authoritarian and very austere, even with her favourites. Hera was thoroughly vindictive. Artemis and Aphrodite were killers. What poor, thin, semi-conscious beings mortal men were, after all. So easily maddened, so readily destroyed by forces whose fearful strength remained forever beyond their powers of concentration. Surely these forces were real. The human mind a mere shadow, a toy. 
Yet if this was so, why was he smiling? At least those dolls could adumbrate in homage their own frailty. And the piercing joy which he felt now, and which he knew to be so momentary, was surely as real as the gods. Right. Well, here we go. Um, clearly, it's the idea of transformation that links the book and the painting. So Henry notices the look of joy on Actian's face as he's been torn to shreds by his own hands. And Henry responds with his own feeling of piercing joy. I think this is what I found so difficult about it, how somebody could look at this painting and feel such joy. Um, it's, it's a very, very somber in its color. Um, so this was the strange thing I think I found, first of all. Anyway, I think what Murdoch is saying here is something about the acceptance of fate, that we are not in an existentialist sense, um, that she found unrealistic, isolated, free choosers, monarchs of all we survey, in command of everything that can happen to us in our life. Sometimes we have to recognize that the ego is secondary to a greater tide of events. Uh, and this acceptance, which at this point in the story, Henry is having to painfully come to terms with, that he cannot control his own life. He has to go with the flow, swim with the tide. Um, this perhaps should not bring with it, Murdoch is suggesting, a sense of anger or frustration or injustice, but bring with it a sense of joy. And these events in our lives, when they happen, maybe should not be seen as demoralizing, but life-giving. So that's one way of looking at the joy that, that um, Henry is feeling when he's looking at the painting. But there's also this rather strange ruthless indifference that he notices on Diana's part to Actian's sufferance. Now, indifference is a central theme in this novel. So many characters feel indifferent to other characters. Henry hates his mother, for her indifference to him and her far greater love for his dead brother Sandy. Uh, Gerda, Harry, Henry's mother, is indifferent to the man who loves her and lives with her in her home, Lucius Lamb. So there is a rationale for this kind of indifference uh, in the myth of Diana and Actian. Now, Actian will undergo a second metamorphosis and will join the constellation of Leo as a star. And it's this second metamorphosis that will lead to his immortality. And there's one particularly, I think, important parallel in the novel uh, that matches the painting here, in that um, what could be interpreted as the indifference to suffering when the saintly Brendan Craddock leaves his friend Cato Forbes. Cato is a Catholic priest who is psychologically stripped by his lot, loss of faith. And Brendan appears to abandon him the same way as Diana seems to abandon Actian to his fate. Cato is embittered and alone and Brendan just waltzes off to India uh, and leaves him. Now, Brendan Craddock is one of Murdoch's good men who chooses to remain powerless. He chooses non-action, not out of cruelty, but understands that his indifference is necessary so that Cato can understand to un Cato can undergo his own transformation. So this indifference is not an act of cruelty, but an act of love. This similar situation crops up again later in 1985 in The Good Apprentice, when the psychotherapist Thomas McCaskerville um, observes the suffering of Edrum, Edward Baltram, 
Um, Edward, is, Edward has been responsible for the death of his best friend, Mark Wilsden, uh, when he gives uh, Mark a drug and leaves him on his own and he jumps out of the window uh, and dies. Thinks He thinks he's Peter Pan and can fly mm. and ends up on the pavement. Um, now, Thomas is the only person who understands that Edward must be allowed to suffer and that he, like Diana, must be a quiet, silent observer and watcher to the scene. Um, and that instinct to heroically jump in and save Edward could be far more dangerous than allowing him to go through his own slow and painful transformation. So I think this painting is feeding Murdoch's interest in this idea and this instinct that we all have when we see people we love suffer to jump in and help them. And she's asking us possibly to just slow down and, and think again. Uh, so both these vignettes, I think, link to the exploration throughout the novels of the nature of suffering and, it, suffering and its impact, not only on those who suffer, but on those who have to watch people they love suffer. And the greatest act of love sometimes is to remain power, powerless, to allow suffering. Uh, perhaps one of the most difficult moral tasks that uh, Murdoch presents to, to readers. Um, it's worth mentioning, though, that whether Brendan Craddock was right to leave Cato. Now, I think it's quite clear that Thomas McCaskerville is right to allow Edward to suffer. But whether Brendan is right to leave Cato to his own devices, I think this remains unresolved. And this, of course, is for readers to decide um, when they read the novel. Yeah, she leaves us with uh, work to do, doesn't she? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, and think, think, thinking about um, Titian and Cruelty, of course, I suppose we, um, although it's not in the National Gallery, we ought to mention um, The Flying of Marcius, perhaps. Yes, well, um, that's really the most significant uh, painting that's right at the centre of Murdoch's moral philosophy. There is a link there, I think, um, uh, on the, the face of Marcius in the painting where Apollo is flaying Marcius, who's suffering, obviously, the most terrible pain, and Marcius is smiling. Mm. And I think that links back to what I've just said uh, about uh, the, the, the death of Actian. The idea that we have to understand that suffering is a part of like, life. It's not sent as a punishment. Um, the flame of Marcius gets a mention um, with when Axel speaks to Simon in... Fairly honourable defeat. A fairly honourable defeat. That's the one. Twenty six of the novels. I do get muddled sometimes. Um, and Axel, Axel says to Simon when Simon says that's an image of suffering and punishment, and Axel said, uh, "No, it's not. It's an act of love." Uh, so, I think she's trying to help us understand that when we suffer, that we can. It helps us to endure suffering and not necessarily to see. A, point to suffering but seeing how we can make and understand and make the, and that understanding of suffering work for us in our moral progress through life yes and and, and she saw um uh the flying of marcius as the the, the high point of of um of, of titian's work didn't she as being one of his latest it latest was his work. final painting i think yeah he painted it when he was almost 90 Mm. Uh, she went to see it when it was on display at the um, the Royal Academy. I think that was in 1984. 
Um, I actually saw it when it was at the National Gallery in 2003. Murdoch, I think, would have been allowed to spend a lot of time with it. John Bailey said she went back again and again to look at this painting. Um, I couldn't do that in 2003. I had to queue for hours to see it. And then I could only just walk past it very slowly. Um, she went back and stopped and looked at it. I mean, it was hugely significant uh, in her, her own iconography. And I think she called it up to mind. You know, we were talking about how Duquesne calls up images to mind. Yes. Uh, and I think this was one she held in her imagination and called up time and time again, not only in her own life, but in the novels. Particularly, of course, it's, it's one of the central images. It doesn't appear in The Black Prince, but the image of flaying comes back again and again. Uh, and what she does in The Black Prince, uh, there's a whole series of characters who suffer and they all suffer differently and, and terribly in their own way. And we're being asked to compare and contrast all these images of suffering uh, and compare them with the image of flaying of Marcius suffering in the flaying of, of Marcius. And uh, I would say rather contentiously that the character who comes closest to the purity of suffering that we see on the face of Marcius is actually Bradley Pearson himself, who is oh. rewarded. Mm. He doesn't succeed so much as he attempts to suffer purely. She tries to divide um, demonic suffering, which is the suffering which we pass on to others, and glorified suffering when we hold suffering within ourselves. And Bradley doesn't succeed, but he's the character who comes closest to try and suffer purely without passing that suffering on to others. And it is for that reason that when he's in prison, he is rewarded with a visit from the god Apollo himself. Indeed, but I, I, a lot depends, I think, on how one reads the postscripts to that novel. Well, indeed, but that's another story for another podcast. It, it, it is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, another podcast for another time, um, particularly on The Black Prince. I'm sure that will be a popular one. Um, and if anybody did want to see um, The Flame of Marcius, it's um, on display, but it's in the Czech Republic. So you'll have to uh, go when, when you're able to. But hopefully it will come back. And thank you so much for um, the tour today. I think we're, we're, we're done, aren't we? I think so, yes. I think we are. Thank you so much for, t for taking us round. And I think your latest thoughts can be found in um, the book Iris Murdoch in the Writers and Their Work series from Liverpool yes. University Press. Um, I've written more extensively about the flaying of Marcius there. And uh, while it's, um, I deal with it uh, in, in a discussion of the Black Prince in the novels, uh, the visual arts and the novels of Iris Murdoch, um, a more up-to-date version of what I think about that is in Iris Murdoch, writers and their work. Yes, and for more about the National Gallery in particular, um, your um, work with Cheryl Bove, um, Sacred Space, Beloved City, would be the one to pick up. Indeed. Yes, yeah. and um, all of the links to the books will be um, just underneath the SoundCloud link. Um, on the website so um, do have a look at those if you'd like to so Anne thank you so much I'm sure you will be back again um, at a I later date so. thank you very much for inviting me it's been a pleasure I thought I might finish with a very short poem that appears in a radio play actually the one alone uh, in which Iris refers to pictures as vehicles of grace and she articulates beautifully her idea, her idea that great paintings can nudge their viewers towards self-knowledge that we can learn something that helps us live our life in the best possible way. So this is the angel song from the one alone. See the light and love the good, fortify your thought apt to tread this path with pictures understood. Love the vehicles of grace and guard them well, 
put them in a secret place. They have always more to tell.